First of all, I would like to thank the Montana History Conference and the Montana Historical Society for having us here and allowing us to have this panel a little off the main subject line, but um, it's a passion of ours and I hope you enjoy it. Uh, this is the emergence of modernism in Montana, and for this I use Montana State College as my case study. Beginning in the mid-1940s, three artists pioneered modernist, the modernist movement in Montana. Francis Senska, Jesse Wilbur, and Robert DeWeese. Working together, they created a sustained art movement able to overcome the cultural resistance to modernism in the state. Modernism burst uh, onto New York City's art scene with the Armory Show in 1913. However, it took over 30 years for, the modernist, for modernist art to take hold in Montana. Using Montana State College, now Montana State University Bozeman, as my case study, I examined the type of climate that allows a new art movement to develop as well as the impediments that prevented the movement from taking root. In examining other factors contributing to modernism outside of major urban cities, I found two factors missing in Montana. Wealthy art patrons to encourage experimentation and or art colonies to create a safe environment for the artists. Digging further, I found an economic and cultural resistance to modernism in Montana, which threatened the economic foundation of a burgeoning tourism industry. Through lore and landscape, cattle and cowboys, myth has always been an integral narrative of the West. The notion of these heroic metaphors living larger than life with a fuel for artists as well as art collectors to perpetuate the myth for reasons of tourism and commerce, as well as a form of patriotism stemming from manifest destiny rhetoric. Myth has a double function. It points out and it notifies. It makes us understand something and then it imposes it on us. By relying on myth, the story ends up replacing actual events. The fundamental message of the myth is appropriated in our regional and national culture while the history is lost. The stories become more familiar than the truth. Coming to Montana in the 1940s, men artists were inundated with the Western myth. The paintings of Charlie Russell and Bill Paxton were ubiquitous. A book commissioned by the Butte Library listed 47 Montana artists in the state, and they all painted the Western trope in one way or another. However, art did not reflect life. Beginning in the 1920s, many of Montana's young people were moving to cities within the state and out of state. Most of Montana's traditional jobs in coal, lumber, mining, and agriculture were stagnant or dropping. However, there was one industry uh, on the rise, tourism. By 1930, over 100 dude ranches developed across the state, mostly around the mountains and valleys near Yellowstone National Park. According to a study of Montana's economy at the time, rail-based tourism brought valuable dollars to, into the state 
with tourists spending $500,000 a year in Montana from 1900 to 1910. Taos, New Mexico became the center for modernism when Mabel Dodge Luan, a wealthy Bohemian art patron, moved from New York to Taos in 1917. Well, we did come back to 1917. Uh, she made her home a gathering place for artists and writers from all over the world. Other states may have offered the unending skies, the open ranges, and the staggering beauty of rugged mountains. But New Mexico had one thing other places did not, a patron. Without the support of Maple Dodge Lujan, even Georgia O'Keeffe may not have put down her artistic roots outside of New York City. At this time, a movement of artist colonies began to emerge in California. Again, this trend remained along the coast of California and can, can, be, and can be attributed to the climate as well as uh, galleries that sold the work. In the 1930s came the Depression. Times were hard everywhere, but no more so than in the West. There were plagues of grasshoppers, prolonged droughts that led to dust bowl conditions and, for, and farm foreclosures. People wanted to think about better times, and so began the resurgence of a type of realism which elevated the cowboy myth of better days, as well as a deep nostalgia for the way things were thought to have been. Western painting took on so much baggage that it was nearly impossible for an artist to create anything other than the traditional landscapes or historical Western scenarios. With the entire tourism economy at stake, modernism did not speak to the myth of the West in a way that could become commercially viable. It would take a strong foundation and a nurturing environment to loosen the grip of the nostalgia for a long gone West. Neither of these two things happened in Montana until the 1940s. The first shift was, saw the expansion of land-grant universities' art departments away from teaching ranching and farming women to paint in their extra time to becoming a serious institution with degrees in both undergraduate and graduate art. With many of the area's young people returning to the Intermountain West after World War II, having seen the world with their eyes opened wide, the land-grant colleges found themselves under pressure to offer more than agriculture or home economics. Jesse Wilbur took a position at Montana State College's very, very, very small art department in 1941. When Wilbur started teaching, the art department was located in the basement of the women's building. It's now called Herrick Hall. It also housed a home economics department. It was there as a testament to the importance of the art department that Jesse Wilbur built a lithography press from a ringer washing machine. <laughs> Looking at Huns from 1954, her interest in painting birds is clearly seen as her abstraction of the figural form. Using a reddish-orange wash, it looks as though we are seeing the birds under a heat lamp. Her deep, saturated color announces itself before the composition, line, or even subject matter. There is a conscious use of a monochromatic theme, an aspect of modernism as put forth by the color fieldists. 
Within the formal aspects of Wilbur's Huns, illusion is destroyed. There is no illusion. This is a painting. The lines are drawn. First we see red like a curtain pulled across the canvas. But this curtain is meant to reveal, not to hide. Then there is the minimalist view of the landscape. And in fact, there is only a single line delineating the horizon. An oval stands in for a pond. Single brush strokes create bare foliage. And then there is the Huns themselves. Of the four of them, two of them stared directly at head, challenging the viewer's gaze. Thematically, Wilbur will use the Huns as well as other birds in her commonly found, commonly found in her backyard again and again. And the trope of the window has been used by modernists since Matisse as a painting, as a view from inside the studio to the outside, or from the subconscious world into the regular world. For Wilbur, it is what is seen from her home within yards of her surroundings and it is the view from her window, whether it is the window of her mind or the windows of her studios. She is constantly exploring her paintings and her, in her prints. According to Clement Greenberg's 1960 essay, Modernist Painting, the immediate aims of the modernists were and remain personal before anything else. The truth and success of their works remain personal before anything else. Wilbur's work evolved, but it never became derivative. Her experience with the land, with the isolation of Montana combined with the community of artists she surrounded herself with, resulted in a uniquely fresh and innovative modernist concept. By keeping to the personal, she would constantly refer to her own environment. And by keeping to the aesthetics of the materials at hand, she could immediately respond to that environment. Wilbur's truth is a reflection of Greenberg's analysis for modernism. Birds, flowers, cats, landscapes were all part of her personal environment. Each print she made spoke to the things she loved, her own experiences and her own memories. Wilbur's unique voice is as indigenous to the Montana landscape as the Huns in her yard. The strength of her work relies on her personal world told through a lifetime of Montana modernist aesthetics. Ceramic artist Frances Senska, hired in 1946, brought with her an African background and a deep interest in local materials that contributed to her role as a pioneering modernist. By drawing on her early years spent in Cameroon, Senska learned to value place and locality, which she applied in the creation of her gouged and painted pots, as well as the figures she sculpted from native Montana clay. Senska's direct connection to Bauhaus artists Marguerite Wildenhain and Lazo Maholi-Nage uh, brought her studio practice into a modernist realm. A modernist relationship to nature that is reflective of the subject rather than naturalistic in every way underscores Senska's work. For example, she uses the form of a chicken to get at the natural structure of a chicken. Senska's imagery of birds is a summation of her own idea of a bird and not depicted by the bird's actual anatomy. Senska's process 
while incorporating utilitarian style of ceramics, also feels like an intuitive process that has a structure, even if it's not clear she, where she had been heading at first. It is as if she was learning as she made the objects, and in her process, the wheels kept turning, and she became more deeply familiar with the problem and then finally solved it. And in her teachings, she learned, and in her learning, she taught. Senska's inventiveness is expressed through her now famous partridges. For Senska, at this period, her work grew from her teaching and a deepening of forms developed in the classroom. Her partridges came from an extension of her work with her students. After demonstrating bottle throwing, she would squeeze the top and create the heads of these birds. It was at Montana State College that Senska fully appreciated the land and the environment where she lived and worked. Montana in the 1940s was a rugged landscape with a small population. The art department, then called the Department of Applied Art, was under the direction of watercolorist Olga Ross Hannon and Jesse Wilbur. And it was just starting to open up to the curriculum to something other than home economics. And Senska had said at the time, I started teaching ceramics with the merest little scrap of knowledge. I just learned it right along with the class. She cleaned out an old storage room in the basement of Herrick Hall, and she bought several small electric kilns and a few kick wheels with a grant of $300. Robert DeWeese served in World War II and went to graduate school on the GI Bill, as did Senska. Uh, his painting, in his painting, uh, Plain Sunset, one of his earlier and more abstract pieces, his thick brush strokes evoke the horizon, although the dark blues, gray, black, and a bit of blood red negate the typical inspiring vista, which would come to mind in a painting of a sunset. Instead, it is heavy with dripping paint. The viewer's eye, while being pulled across the plain, drops into pockets of timelessness areas of gray and like a game of chutes and ladders zips the viewer up again. The piece is more of a journey than an exercise in observation, more of a dialogue than a meditation. To stand in front of Deweese's plain sunset, the viewer must interact with the work. The first thing to notice is the horizontal patterning of the brushstrokes then the red area that could be a setting sun. And as the viewer comes to the realization that this is a landscape, an undulating surface begins to come clear. Levels of ground, of hills against the sky coalesce. This kind of experience is exciting for the beholder. It rewards the viewer for a few minutes of work that is wildly different from the realist aesthetic. It transforms the viewer into an active observer and requires a conscious level of activity. When we consciously work at what we see, the experience is elevated. By the time Deweese, Senska, and Wilbur were working in Montana, cubism had come and gone. Abstraction, abstract expressionism were just starting out on the rise. 
but, a well, but they are well established in other parts of the country. Montana artists had the task of taking those movements and condensing them in order to educate and promulgate the notion of modernism in an environment hostile to anything that was not catering to the myth. To do so, they had to show as well as prove that their art was exciting and had its own rewards. As a teacher, and especially a teacher in Montana, dealing with students who may not have been in contact with anything other than art promoting the myth, DeWeese brought in notes from other modernist painters to inform his work and to teach his students aspects of, out, of the outside art world. But he did so with a mind to place and a mind to his students. Without the prior knowledge of theory and practice, it was nearly impossible to go forward in a dialogue with art. Deweese's unique aspect of Montana modernism, always aware of where he was, his work progressed to include the landscape. Even in his most abstract work, like Plain Sunset, the land cannot but help to find a way onto the canvas. In order for an art movement to take hold, it needed the initial two components, patronage and an art colony. In this case, Montana State College offered, uh, offered the security of a patron with the jobs in the growing art department, and it also offered the idea of an art colony because there, were, uh, there became a community of musicians, dancers, and writers, as well as artists, that interacted, and they supported each other's foray to the edges of modern art. There was no real art market, so the only support they received was from each other. The fact that this type of community existed <clears throat> allowed for the third element of modernism to take hold, the strength in numbers to fight back against the myth of the West. As a sub-element of these components, I would like to add the roles of DeWeese, Senska, and Wilbur as artists and teachers that contributed to the dimension of uh, an aspect of community. Each one encouraged their students to create expressive art and supported their art by inviting them to show their work to the public and to each other. Senska's teaching style was very hands-on Although she did not encourage students to make pots that looked like hers, she did physically place her hands on her students' artwork. Wilbur's generosity of spirit gave her students the leeway to explore various materials. And when combined, as most students experienced all the professors, uh, these, they left behind not only a large impression of modernism, but they also enabled their students to discover what it could become in their hands. In conclusion, art movements are generally created by a small group of people who push forward with a different perspective other than the status quo. After World War II, due to the increase in college graduate and postgraduate enrollment with money from the GI Bill, Montana State College was able to provide the, stabili the stability of Mabel Dodge Lujan and the art community and colonies in California. Montana was not as isolated as people thought. Deweese, Senska, and Wilbur encouraged the sharing of new ideas, showed these ideas to their own art and teaching practice, 
which in turn created the basis for modernism to take hold in Montana. I have tracked the circuitous route that modernism took after World War II and observed how land-grant universities provided a kind of patronage. Due to the remoteness of Montana at the time, the art community became very close-knit, acting as an artist colony. But in the end, it was the work itself that did the heavy lifting. It wasn't just the personalities or the teaching philosophies of Wilbur, Senska, and DeWeese as mentors, but their own work that inspired generations. The Montana modernists all found, their way, all found ways to use the landscape as a touchstone. Whether it was the hill behind their homes or simply the color choices, the big sky, the scavenging birds, or the scraping ragged peaks of the mountains. For Senska, Wilbur, and DeWeese, it was their ability to take something their audience would know, the landscape, and use it in a modernist way. And by this I mean they created a viewer who was actively seeing the work, an experience of the beholder to engage with the work rather than ask the viewer to stand there passively. With Senska's spirit of investigation, Wilbur's confidence in an untried system, and DeWeese's ability to respond, they began a process to debunk the myth by becoming more than a mere myth and more at one with a modern world. Their work was relevant and found a substantive audience. They emerged from the basement of the women's building into the light of modernism. Thank you.